I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Today we are going to finish up this second section of the book of Genesis. So if you remember, if you were here, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, begins a new section with the words, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And this particular section tells what happened initially to God's good creation and how it, the curse uh, came into effect. And this section that begins in chapter 2, verse 4, it runs through to the end of chapter 4, and then chapter 5 begins a new section. And in this chapter, we're going to look at all of verse chapter 4 today, I should say. Uh, in, this section, in this chapter, the emphasis is on the proliferation and the spread of sin in Adam and Eve's offspring. And so we're going to read this together, and then we'll work through it in a little more detail. So let's read the whole chapter, beginning in verse 1, Genesis 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, sorry, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who played the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. As I said, we have in this chapter the deepening rot of sin as depravity takes its hold. We see now the effects of what Cain or what sorry of what Adam and Eve have wrought in the world. 
And we see that with it comes a calloused rejection of God and a calloused treatment of other men. This is what sin is. It is the opposite of loving God and of loving neighbor. Another way to say it, it is the violation of God's law, of both tables of God's law. The laws that are related to the right worship of God and the laws that are related to our right fellow, our, our right treatment of our fellow men. This reality is what we see playing out here in Genesis chapter 4, and it's what we see in our world today. The world that we inhabit is indeed a Genesis 4 world. The world is a treacherous place in which the Almighty Creator is very callously dismissed and despised by His creatures, who then go about pillaging and trampling on others who bear the image of God. And yet even so, even though this is what Genesis 4 is revealing to us, it is not just despair in these verses either. God's plan to bring about a Messiah, an offspring of the woman, continues to move forward here despite the spread of sin and despite the actions of Cain. There are implications in this text for those of us who believe as we live in this fallen world. And so we're going to look at how the spread of sin in the world brings with it four things. So this is our outline. The spread of sin in the world brings with it four things. First, the calloused rejection of God. Secondly, the calloused treatment of men. Third, the necessity of God's mercy. And fourth, the necessity for God's people to remain steadfast. Now, just before we launch into it, uh, the first of those four points is going to be a lot longer than the others. So if we're still here a while from now and we're still on point one, uh, just know the other ones will move a little quicker. I just want to make that uh, statement up front in case you're tempted to check out in fear of being here forever. So uh, beware. So let's begin noting first the spread of sin brings with it the calloused rejection of God. Throughout this chapter, we see what ought to be understood by us as a shocking coldness in the rejection of God that we see here. Especially in light of all that we have seen already about who God is as the creator of all things. The, the distinction between him and all else that we can see. And the greatness of God. What we find here is, is stunning. It ought to be. So we, we read in verse 1, Now Adam knew his wife, Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And so here Adam and Eve begin to be fruitful and multiply even though sin is in the world. While they're no longer in the garden, this is still right and this is still good. And Eve even acknowledges right here that this was the Lord's kindness to her, that she has gotten a child with the help of the Lord, is what she says. And it is possible that Eve's statement here is a cry of faith. It is possible that she has hope that this son will be this promised offspring that was promised in chapter 3, verse 15. Certainly, we will see this hope is found in chapter 4, even towards the end, and it will persist throughout the book of Genesis. Perhaps that was what she has in mind when she makes this cry of, of, of gladness at the birth of her son with the help of the Lord. Of course, we know, we've read, and we understand how this is going to play out. Cain will not be that particular offspring, quite contrary. But the focus here is primarily upon Cain. We have the birth of Cain and Abel, but Cain is the main focus. Abel is referred to as his brother. This is signaling that this chapter is emphasizing the spread of sin among the descendants of Adam, and specifically Cain. We're told there Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer. And then in verse 3, it continues, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. 
So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So we have the two brothers bringing an offering to the Lord in the course of time. Perhaps in all likelihood, this is not the first time that they had done this. They bring their offerings and we're told that God regarded Abel's, but not Cain's. Now, the text does not explicitly tell us why this is the case, why God accepted Abel's and not Cain's. And there are three main possibilities asserted as to why it was that God rejected Cain's and had regard for Abel's. The first is that it's possible that Cain brought the wrong type of offering. Cain brought produce, something of the land, while Abel brought an animal, namely a blood sacrifice. Certainly it is possible that God was already requiring the shedding of blood at this point in history, which of course is later made explicit and is connected with atonement and with forgiveness. We know even back to last week that at the end of chapter 3, God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins. And I think it is a fair implication from that that God slaughtered these animals and we have the first Sacrifice, And they provide a covering then, these skins for Adam and Eve. And so it's plausible that they understood that were to understand that these sacrifices were to continue. We do see animal sacrifices in the Old Testament in Genesis and prior to the explicit command to offer them in the Mosaic law. Moreover, we see those sacrifices being accepted by God. So I think it's right to understand that there was a correct understanding amongst people that they are to bring animal sacrifices when they bring offerings to God. And if there wasn't some sort of command for such, if that wasn't right, I don't think we would see God accepting those offerings and sacrifices. And so it's possible, and I think likely part of the problem here is that Cain misunderstands these things. But there are others who point out that grain offerings and first fruit offerings also have their place later in Scripture. We see that it was that there were offerings in the, under the Mosaic Covenant, under Mosaic Law, to bring their first fruit, to bring grain offerings. There was nothing wrong in and of itself for that. Those were not atonement offerings, but they were still accepted offerings. And so it's hard to say with absolute certainty that Cain was wrong for bringing a portion of what he had as a farmer. So a second possibility is that Cain's offering was of poor quality. The text tells us that Abel offered his firstborn and that he gave the fat portions with it. These things will both become important as part of sin offerings later on. You can see that in Leviticus chapter 4. On the other hand, there's no reference to the quality of Cain's offering. It's just the fruit of the ground. It doesn't tell us it was the first fruits. The first thing to come out doesn't reference the quality. So it's possible that's part of the problem. He's offering some lame offering of the fruit of the ground. The third possibility is without question true, and at the very least, a significant part of the problem. If it's not the entirety of the problem, it is certainly the root of it. And that is that Cain did not offer what he offered in faith. That his heart was not in it. He did not offer in faith and in true worship, but perhaps just out of some routine, just thinking, this is just something I have to do and I'll just do this and get it done. It is possible then that lacking faith, he therefore offered a poor quality offering and possibly even the the wrong offering despising the necessity of blood sacrifice. We do know elsewhere in Scripture, Hebrews 11, chapter 4, that Abel did offer in faith. And this is obviously contrasted with Cain. Hebrews eleven four says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, He still speaks. It's that God accepted 
and looked kindly and received Abel's offering reveals that Abel was a man of faith. That's what Hebrews 11 is telling us. So that doesn't exclude the fact that it could have also been the wrong offering that he offered as a wicked man came. Regardless, God's response to, or Cain's response to God's displeasure and not receiving that sacrifice is not one of repentance, but rather we're told he responds with anger. So it says Cain was very angry and his face fell. And then the Lord kindly offers him correction and warning. If he would repent, if he would do well, all would be good. And yet, sin is crouching at the door as a lion desiring to conquer him, desiring to master Cain. God warns him, tells him of this. And Cain is certainly depraved now, born into sin as a son of Adam. But this is clearly not any excuse for his sin whatsoever. God warns him here that he is to rule over his sin. He's not off the hook in any way. Cain is angry, but things will get worse if Cain is not careful. He is warned here in God's patience with him. Of course, Cain is not careful. And in the next verses, we see sin gain its mastery as Cain's cold-hearted rejection of God deepens. If Cain simply didn't know what to bring or didn't know what the problem was, God easily would have clarified that. The way God speaks to him, if you would do well, implies Cain understands, Cain knows. It's not simply ignorance that we would excuse his poor offering. In verse 8, after God warns him, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Rhetorical question. The voice of your brother's blood, God says, is crying to me from the ground. Cain's response to God's inquiry is chilling in its heartlessness, in its boldness. It is a lie, and it is spitting in the face of God. I don't know. Yes, he does know. I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? That would be a rude response, even if Cain hadn't done anything wrong. Am I his keeper? What, is it, what do I care? What does it matter to me? Why are you asking me? But all the more since he has just murdered him. It is a lie. It's spitting in the face of God to answer and reply in this way. And notice there's no question mark here for Cain about whether he's aware of God's existence to explain away his ignorance or his sinfulness. It is just cold-hearted indifference to God. He's speaking with the Almighty. And so, the, again, the boldness of this is shocking to us, and it ought to be shocking. Again, this is one of the dangers. If somebody wants to just submit that this chapter here is not really telling a real story, but it's just kind of a myth that's made up to give us some kind of sense of what has gone wrong with humanity, we will miss just how deep-rooted the problem is that God could speak to Cain, and Cain can just respond in this way. It reveals the depth of depravity and what has gone on. This kind of a response to God goes beyond Adam and Eve's evasive response we looked at in chapter 3. There they at least acknowledge what they have done, even though they're you know, shifting blame to others. Here is the effect of sin. This calloused rejection of God and defiance. God responds saying that Abel's blood is crying out to him from the ground. Cain cannot hide this. His blood is crying for vengeance to God, the judge of all. And so God, the judge, pronounces a punishment. In verse 11, And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. 
Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain is now directly cursed by God. It's worth noting, if you remember from last week in chapter 3, Satan is directly cursed, but then Adam and Eve are not themselves directly cursed. It is said that Eve, of course, her labor is going to be greatly intensified. There's going to be strife in their marriage relationship. The ground that Adam is to work is cursed. But here it's a step further as Cain himself is cursed by God. And Cain, the farmer, will no longer be able to gain from the ground. It will no longer yield to him its fruit. He is now to be a fugitive and a wanderer sent away. And Cain's response to this judgment should be read, I would submit to you, as a complaint and as an objection to the punishment, not as any sort of genuine repentance. It's too much punishment, he thinks. He's still upset. He's still angry about it. He fears retribution, which is his just due, we might add. He fears retribution that someone's going to kill him, in which he likely envisions other descendants of Adam in the future at some point seeking him out and avenging Abel's blood. And so God, in an act that is merciful, puts a mark upon Cain to keep this very thing from happening. Even saying that a, a fullness of punishment, a sevenfold punishment, would come upon any who try to kill him. Now that, that mark is not explained here, and I don't know what that is, and I don't think anyone's really certain of exactly what that mark is. I don't think it's important that we would know specifically, but that it would be known, and it would be clear, and people would have known this. Now that God treats Cain this way, it's, it's something of a wonder and a bit of a mystery as to why God permits him to live. Later in Scripture, even in Genesis, after the, the flood, we'll see that God actually declares that if a man sheds another man's blood, then his blood should be shed. He actually sets forth the death penalty if a man kills another man in cold blood like this. And so given that, it seems a bit odd, at least to me, a little mysterious as to why God permits Cain to continue to live out his days. And it's possible, one possible explanation, that it might be that God is making clear first that vengeance is ultimately his. And that even the death penalty is not something that is to be carried out haphazardly, apart from his express command to do so or permission. That we are not to be taking this matter lightly of taking life. Of all of the things that are said to Cain here, and of all the things that are part of his punishment, perhaps the most crushing, at least I think it probably should be, is that he is sent away from the presence of the Lord, it says. He is sent off to his godless existence. This is what he wanted, and this is what he is now condemned to. And the picture seems to be a gradual distancing from Eden, this special garden sanctuary that God created and then placed Adam and Eve within. Adam and Eve have been removed from it, and now Cain is being sent even further away from it. Even outside of Eden, in some fashion, God has spoken with Cain. But now he's going to be sent away to his, live out his godless existence. And yet, Cain's defiance still isn't done. He ends up in a place which gets its name from Cain's curse. It says the land of Nod, which means wandering. So it was later named Nod after Cain settled in there. And yet, he and his offspring worked to establish a city in verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, 
He called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. This is evidently an attempt to ease the curse of wandering. All of this is rebellion against God. And while his offspring would become notable for things like musical instruments and other tools of bronze, forging instruments of bronze and iron, the descent into sin continues to progress through chapter 4. We are told in verse 19, for example, that Lamech here took two wives. You read through that, past that quickly. But the creation order of one man and one woman becoming one flesh in marriage is here brushed aside for Lamech to take to himself a second wife. And we'll see more of that issue later as we continue through Genesis. And we'll deal with that further another time. But he takes two wives and then he goes on, this man, to boast to them. In verse 23, it says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Again, we have a mocking of God and a boasting of his crime. One commentator writes, Lamech is gloating over a reputation more ruthless than infamous Cain's, and that God's promise to avenge Cain's life seven times is interpreted by Lamech as a badge of honor for Cain rather than as a merciful provision by God for a shameful criminal. There is a rejection of God in Cain and in his offspring that is absolutely hard-hearted and calloused. It is bald-faced mockery of God and of his creation and of his law. And this is the world that we live in. There are many in our world who would like to act as if there is simply not enough evidence to convince the wise of this earth, the real studied people of God's existence. They act very dismissively of the mere concept of Almighty God. It's backwards. It's for people who are not educated. But the Bible is very consistent throughout in showing to us and in stating plainly that the problem with mankind is not a lack of evidence. Was evidence in short supply for Cain when he said, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper, to God? Was it a lack of evidence of God's power and goodness that caused Israel to rebel in the wilderness? Having seen God's displays in Egypt and the curses brought upon Egypt and the plagues, having seen God's power in bringing the people through the Red Sea, having seen the pillar of fire and the cloud leading them, was it a lack of evidence that caused them to rebel against God in the wilderness on multiple occasions? Was it a lack of evidence that caused the Pharisees and Judas and many others to reject Christ and to put him on the cross. This is why Jesus lamented that man wants a sign. They want more signs. But that's not going to do it. The problem is not ultimately a lack of evidence or a lack of signs. Romans 1 tells us that God has clearly revealed to us, to all mankind, certain aspects of himself in the things that he has made. His divine nature and his eternal power, specifically. Paul says it's clearly perceived in the things that God has made. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Their mere existence preach a message to everybody who looks up. And it's not unclear or muddled. It's evident. It is plain for all. The nature of human fallenness, of man's problem, is such that evident truth is suppressed in unrighteousness. And often in such a cold and callous manner, thinking themselves wise, man has become a fool. When Paul writes in Romans 1, 
about how man knew God, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This may, that may well be, at least in part, commentary on what we're reading here in, Romans 4, or in Genesis chapter 4. It's not as though Cain wasn't convinced of God's existence or even his power and required more time in university. He was just that rebellious. This is the nature of the problem. This is what lurks in sinful human nature. It's not always expressed in such bold form, but often it is. And even in believers, think of that coldness that you often feel in your own heart toward the Lord. That's a remnant of this depravity. It is not of the new man when we are flippant about or indifferent to the things of God. Where our conscience is saying, don't do it, and we do it anyway. We have to understand, man's rejection of God is not due to a lack of evidence. Now we can, and it's good to be certainly prepared to dispel common objections about the existence of God for those who might have sincere questions for us. But we know that that won't necessarily make that person change their mind. The problem goes deeper. The problem is spiritual. The problem is not that man cannot know certain facts. The problem is they do not possess ability in their spirit, a spiritual ability, to believe apart from God's grace. The problem is internal, man's nature. We must not believe or buy into the thought that smart and educated people have all these valid reasons to reject God. The Bible does not conclude that. We're told that, we're bombarded with that, but it's not true. In fact, such people the Bible will refer to as being fools. None of this means that we can't be sympathetic to unbelievers. Of course we should. We should sympathize with unbelievers. Since we were at one time there, were it not for God's grace, we would still be there. We should be able to speak to them, hopefully with humility. But I also realize that what I'm saying is not viewed as humility at all. To say that it's not a lack of evidence. But this is what God's word teaches us. It's really not a difficult concept of God's power and existence. It's right there in the things that have been made. We can be sympathetic, but we should not be intimidated by man. Be convinced in your conscience that the word of God is true here. And let us work to flee from and war against the fear of man and whatever intimidation we might feel from the so-called wise of this world. And this is why we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God and the salvation for all who believe. It is the only saving answer to mankind's problem. It is through the proclamation of the gospel of Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection that God overcomes the sinner's rebellion. Let us be convinced of this. Let us be admonished. Let us be renewed in our courage to bear witness to Christ's death and resurrection for sinners. And to call people to repentance and to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some will obviously despise us for it and think us fools. And let's be of the mindset, so be it. Because also some will believe. For it is the power of God and the salvation for all who believe. And so the spread of sin brings with it 
the callous rejection of God that we see in Genesis 4, we continue to see. Secondly, the spread of sin in the world brings with it the callous treatment of men. It is no surprise that if man can callously blow off God Almighty, then he's going to do unspeakable evil to his fellow man. One of the ways sin expresses itself, one of the ways that rejection of God reveals itself, is in the horrible treatment of other image bearers, of other human beings. Consider again Cain's treatment of his brother, of his own flesh and blood. There's the jealousy he possesses of his brother's sacrifice that's accepted by God. And after being warned, again, in verse 8, we read, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. At this point, some ancient versions and some English versions give us Cain's words here. Namely, that what Cain spoke to Abel was, let us go out into the field. There's dispute and debate about whether that should be considered as part of the original Hebrew. But even without that quotation, it would seem evident, it would seem to suggest here that Cain spoke to him and drew him out into the field where he would kill him away from the eyes of his parents and his siblings and then dispose of his body and hope to do that quietly and secretly. Sure enough, that's precisely what we read. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. If indeed this is a planned out thing that Cain did, it is just further evidence of his cold-hearted view of his brother. And of course, when he's confronted by God, there's that chilling statement, I do not know where he is. Am I my brother's keeper? Again, not only a bold response to God, but reveals his disdain for his brother and his complete lack of remorse. This is a soulless type of evil, we would say, committed right here. This isn't even generations of defect in DNA taking nothing. It's just Adam and Eve's son. It's not just rejection of God, but it's attack then upon the pinnacle of his creation, man himself. And of course, also in chapter 4 here, we have Lamech again at the end of the chapter. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. He's bragging of his murderous ways. Violence is now a celebrated reality. We're not that far removed from the garden. Some think that the instruments of bronze and iron from verse 22 that were now being made would include not only farm implements, but also weapons of warfare. Certainly we know mankind is now on a war footing. One of the ultimate and most disastrous and horrific consequences of the fall. War. There are all kinds of ways that mankind's brutality and hatred will be expressed toward others as the Old Testament unfolds, Genesis and beyond. But we see it right here, right away, in the offspring of Adam and Eve and their not-so-distant descendants as we get down to Lamech. And once again, as we consider life in this world, we cannot be naive about what kind of evil man is possible of committing against other men. I think it's wrong to assume that these people we're talking about here, Cain and Lamech, would have necessarily looked evil. Sometimes we can think of that. We think of people who committed very horrific acts in previous eras of history, and we just assume we would have been able to spot them out of a crowd and call them out. Because we don't think that we're like them. We don't think we share the same substance The same nature. It amazes me how in recent years, skepticism towards sinful men who happen to be very wealthy in positions of power, that this is now treated by some Christians as being unhealthy and as being conspiratorial. 
But we ought to have a healthy skepticism of unbelieving man. Whether it's something just as mundane as we're asking around for a good mechanic, or we're listening to the advice of our doctors or the assurances of politicians and various other talking heads on television or on the internet. And I'm not excusing every wacky theory. I'm not excusing any terrible thinking that goes on. We must seek to be discerning. Seek to think well about all kinds of claims that we hear. Aware of what lurks in the heart of man. This is just one implication of many that come from this. We live in a fallen world. And with it comes a calloused treatment of other human beings. Maybe just an easy example. We do murder babies. And that's just, you're crazy if you have a problem with abortion. Just smiling-faced, happy, acceptable, the majority of people, it would seem, just okay with it. These same people know how to be nice to other people at times. They'll serve you when you walk into their restaurant or wherever it happens to be. They have a smile on their face. We live in a fallen world and with it comes the callous treatment of other human beings in all kinds of ways. Lying, stealing, the slander that seeks to ruin another's livelihood or reputation, jealousy, oppression, hatred, and murder. People are used and abused all the time in all kinds of ways. And again, God's law exposes these things for the sins that they are. And man needs to hear this standard of righteousness from God's people. That they would know that these things are sin. That we might seek to use it to reveal to individuals their own sin. That they might turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance of those sins. That even as a society general awareness of it. Our hope would be that God's law would also have a restraining effect even amongst those who would not bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe. We are seeing removal of that restraint, that consciousness of God's law increasingly removed. And so we continue to hold it forth. No, this is sin. And of course, call individuals to faith in Christ Jesus. Again, this is a reminder that the gospel is the hope for sinners. And so, thirdly, the spread of sin into the world brings with it the necessity of God's mercy. Now, from God's perspective, he didn't have to be merciful. He could have just chosen to be just. But from a human perspective, if anything good is to come from all of this, If anything good is to happen or to occur, it's got to be from mercy. And at the end of the chapter, verse 25, we read again, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Cain is not the promised offspring, nor will it come from his line. And Abel has been murdered, his line put to an end. But it's not over, and God raises up another son, raises up another line. And it is through Seth's offspring that the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come. God's plan to redeem in his kindness and mercy remains on track in spite of everything we've seen. In spite of the proliferation of wickedness and evil and the extent of it we see here early on. And even as Cain's line is shown to be celebrating evil 
And spiraling down further, there is another line as the Lord draws out some among fallen mankind to worship him. As we're told here, they began to call upon the name of the Lord. The world is fallen, and we must not be naive about that. But so, too, does God continue to save and draw sinners to himself, even out of this world. He has sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die for sinners and to rise again from the dead, that all in him might come out from under Adam and into union with Christ Jesus himself. Christ is the hope for fallen man, and it is through the preaching of Christ that God is mighty and powerful to save. And so again, we hold forth hope. We hold it for ourselves and we hold it forth to others. Even in the midst of dark times, we might say, especially in the midst of dark times. Lastly, the spread of sin into the world brings with it the necessity for God's people to remain steadfast. In this chapter, we see the early stages of Satan raging against the offspring of the woman. Elsewhere in Scripture, Cain is told to be a child of the devil. So this is what 1 John 3 says in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Abel's deeds are said here to be righteous deeds. He was a man of faith and his faith produced good works as seen in his acceptable offering. And the wicked man Cain, on the other hand, is of the evil one, we're told, and he killed Abel for it. He killed Abel for his righteousness. Abel was persecuted. He was martyred. Indeed, God's people throughout the scriptures in both Old and New Testaments are often targeted by evildoers. Satan rages against the Lord and against the Lord's people. He would try to prevent the coming of the Messiah, seek to wipe out his line. Recall King Herod seeking to wipe out all the babies that were born within a two-year period to wipe out the line. Who's behind that? What agent of darkness might have instigated that? However, he did it. But the serpent. And yet God's plan will not be thwarted. Indeed, the Messiah has come. And he has dealt the death blow to Satan. And while the devil's time is limited, and his final defeat is sure, he still does prowl, seeking to kill, steal, and destroy and we know, of course, he loathes and hates the church. And so it's not without reason that Paul told Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We can expect it to some degree. The apostles taught us this. We are not above our master. They hated him first. Christ taught us this. The apostles taught it, and they all modeled it for us as well. Therefore, this is a reminder and a call to steadfastness in the Lord, come what may. Our Lord is worthy. He is preeminently good for forgiving and pardoning us through his Son. And so let us hold fast to that. The world is fallen the world is dark. What lurks in man is hideous. But the Savior has come. And he will yet come again. And he will establish one day perfect justice. And let us look ahead to that day. Let us rejoice in that day in faith. And live in light of that day. And summon others, other sinners, to join us in doing the same. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to be fully convinced of the truth of your word. The whole of your word, and certainly what we have read here and and looked at this afternoon. Father, as we consider the wickedness that is all around us and all throughout our world, I pray that you would help us, first and foremost, to consider our own hearts, to confess our sins to you, and to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive his grace and forgiveness and pardon. Father, I pray that you would forgive us where we have been cowered into silence, where we have been intimidated by what the wise of the world would say to us, about what we believe. Father, I pray that you would bring us a conviction in our conscience that we cannot deny. And I pray that you would bring about boldness in us. Father, give us compassion for the lost, understanding that we too are sinners. Father, I pray that we would learn what it means to have compassion for the lost if we do not possess it. Father, renew us in this. Give us courage to speak the truth of the gospel, knowing that it is the hope of salvation. Father, may we not leave here simply downcast and depressed about how evil things are, but that we would be rejoicing in your salvation and hopeful in the power of that good news to go forth. So, Father, we we look to you for help, for we are ourselves sinners and in so much need of your help every moment of every day. Father, renew us, strengthen us, and encourage us, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.